Well, let's take our Bibles and turn them open to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. This morning we're going to look at Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Brothers and sisters, now hear the word of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 37, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and and, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. And I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold a rattling and the bones came together. Bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were coming on them and flesh grew and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. and We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will Open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. And when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up and out of your graves, my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. That ends the reading of God's powerful word. Now let's ask for his blessing. Now, Father, we don't come to this word this morning presumptuous. Lord, we call for your help, your aid, your power. We come, O Lord, that you might take what we have heard with our ears and cause us to hear it in our hearts In our minds, Lord, that we would have the Spirit and the Word teaching us and instructing us. Lord, instruct us with this vision, this valley of dry bones. Help us to understand its meaning, Lord, and help us see the power 
of your glory and of your word and of prayer. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning I do want to draw your attention to this vision of Ezekiel. This vision that God showed to Ezekiel, this valley of dry bones, is more than likely the most popular vision among God's people when they think about Ezekiel. It's a well-known vision. It is, it's something that is very commonly heard during revival seasons. This is a passage of Scripture that is often pointed to and used in order to bring dead churches to life. But I want to draw your attention this morning to three truths that I will pull from this text of Scripture. Three truths that we will look at and benefit, hopefully by God's grace, benefit from this morning as we consider this vision. The first is the deplorable condition of God's people. Now that's something that is obvious, isn't it? The very first thing that I want to draw your attention to in the vision is the dead church. The dead church, this condition, this deplorable, detestable condition that Ezekiel finds when God takes him by the Spirit and sets him in the valley to notice all of these dry bones. The text tells us what the bones represent. Look there at verse 11. We don't have to guess. We see from verse 11 that, that it was Jehovah that said to Ezekiel, he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. And we are completely cut off. The dry bones represent a church that is hopeless, a nation, a nation that is hopeless. A hopeless people, beloved, are a useless people. A hopeless people are people that do not work, they do not labor, they do not have any expectation that what they are getting up and putting their hands to that day has any profit to them whatsoever. They were a hopeless people. All of their spiritual vigor had dried up and they had perished in the sight of God. And God's, from God's perspective, Think about this. From God's perspective, they were dead. Dead. They had been humbled. Humbled in the dust. Depressed. 
They were depressed. They were not in their own homeland. They were exiles in the land of Babylon. See, that's, that was Ezekiel's calling. That was Ezekiel's role before the face of God where Jeremiah was called to preach to those who remained back in Jerusalem and those in, and even to the nation of Egypt. Here, his contemporary Ezekiel is called by God to preach and prophesy to the exiles in Babylon. This is the ministry of Ezekiel. His ministry is to those who have been, who have been deported from their homeland. Taken out of their homeland. Taken away from the temple. From the presence of God. And now they've been deported and live in a foreign land. Among foreign people who worship foreign gods. And they were hopeless. They were dead. They were broken. It's not unlike what we find today, even though this is a more drastic, heavier, weightier picture where we might complain about the church in the United States, but we don't see the whole church all over the world falling under the same compromise that, as as the church does in the United States. We have in various places of the world, the church is thriving and living and the, the power of God is being shown in the preaching of the gospel. We have people walking miles and miles to hear a gospel message. We have people gathering under ten shelters and in open fields to hear the gospel preached. Where we might have churches in magnificent structures and buildings hardly living at all. But in this situation, we have a whole covenant nation considered before the face of God as dead. Drastic. They're broken. A hopeless people will always be a broken people. No one likes to consider themselves as dead. The vision itself is that of a lost battle. A lost cause. Notice the vision. He takes Ezekiel and he sets him in the valley. Oftentimes, none. it is certainly believed and considered to be true that the valley would probably, this a valley that represented many battles in the past. That armies would face each other and they would face each other in these valleys and they would war with one another. And the scene is that of a a battle that has passed and the dead are strewn out into the valley and it's been long enough now that the flesh is all putrefied and decayed and the vultures have come and picked off all the meat and the bones have been bleached by the sun and the wind has dried up every bit of strength in these bones. They are scattered, they are dry, they are cracked, they are broken, they are dead. That's the picture. You know, we are unaccustomed to those kinds of things because we've never seen anything like that. But you can imagine where there's a battle of tens of thousands of people. What do you do with the dead? You can't bury them all. 
You can't burn them all. Many of them are left out on the battlefield for natural means to take place. This seems to be a picture, the picture of defeat. God's people have been defeated, but what was the cause of this picture, this vision? What was the cause of God's people of having been taken into exile? Why are God's people seen as dead in God's sight? That's an important question, isn't it? Well, there are several reasons for this. Several reasons for this. That is, this brokenness, this hopelessness, this, this, this humbling that has happened to them was all of their own doing. There are three things, or at least three sins, that I want to bring to our attention this morning as we consider this hopeless people. The first sin that I want to bring to your attention is the sin of believing lies. Believing lies. You go back and you, you read these previous chapters in Ezekiel, and for the sake of time and our attention this morning, we're not going to go back. I don't plan to go through and deal with all of these verses, but it would be something that would benefit you this afternoon. You, you, would, you go back and you begin right there in those first 24 chapters, and, and God states His case through His prophet. God, through Ezekiel, reminds them of their sin. Part of their sin was believing the false prophets. They didn't believe God's prophets who told them to turn from their sin. They believed the lies of the false prophets. And what were these lies? Well, these lies were along the lines of something like this. You know, true liberty is exercising your own will and prerogative. True liberty, where where the prophets of God would come and they would say, Brothers and sisters, the only liberty one can have and peace and the joy that comes with that liberty is when one is in communion and harmony with the living and true God. And that they might take upon themselves His law as their yoke and find peace. Well, the false prophets would come along and they would say, well, that's legalism. That's legalism. True liberty is man doing what's right in his own eyes. True liberty is being able to to look at the other nations and, and enjoy how they worship their gods in making innovations in the worship of God, bringing into practice these foreign gods and ways into the worship of Jehovah God Almighty. These innovations, as, as the prophet would call them, he said, but these are lies. 
These things don't bring liberty. They actually bring enslavement. These things never bring that life promised by these false teachers and prophets. They bring death. And that's the picture we see here in the Valley of Dry Bones. See, the valley of dry bones is nothing more than the fruit of their own ways. God letting them have what they thought they really wanted. That's what He's doing. It was the fruit of their own sins, their self-willed attitude, their innovations, their idolatry. You go back and you, you look at Ezekiel 8 and he shows, he takes Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, I want you to notice these abominations of my people. And he talks about the congregation and he talks about the priests. All the, the, the sin was not in any one particular group. There was sin among all of, the, of God's people. Now they weren't all guilty of immorality and idolatry per se. They all didn't go out seeking to to worship false gods. Some of them remained true to the living God, but guess what? They wouldn't say anything. They wouldn't be the watchmen. You know, they would let their brothers and sisters just kind of go their own merry way and have their own ideas of things. And they wouldn't say, but you are a church member. You are a child of God. And he says not to do these things. What are you doing? You are going to bring harm and hurt to yourself. They wouldn't do that. In order to keep what they called peace, they would just let everybody do what was right in their own eyes. And that had to be judged too. That couldn't be acceptable. You might say that like our own day and time, right? We have God's people flirting with all different kinds of philosophies, changing the dynamics of the family relationship of husband and wives and parents and children. These moral philosophers You know, they've told us now we can be a moral people and we don't need God. That's what we're being told. We can all be good people. We don't need God to be good. That's a lie. There are also these moral revolutionaries. We run into them from time to time in our day and time. And they say, well, God's not only not needed, God's not wanted. We don't want God here because He is an ogre he is, you know, if God really existed, why does evil exist in the world? He's a mean God. Someone who demands unconditional love and He does whatever He wants. These are the things that are being told. These are these moral revolutionaries. They don't go as far as the moral philosophers who say, oh, no, we can be a good people. We can be good to one another, but we don't need God to be good to each other. These say, well, we don't want God at all. And sort of the, the moralist that sits in the church. The moral churchman who says, well, you know, I mean, God is more like a crutch. I use Him when I need Him. I mean, when I'm really in need, I will 
call upon God. But other than that, I'm a really, I'm a man or a woman of my own strength. I have my own power. I can do these things and would not bother God, you know, with these things. It sounds very pious. And, oh, I would never bother God with my petty things. Oh, no, no. I mean, you know, moralist. Someone depending upon their faithfulness, their own goodness. They don't see their own sins the way God sees them. But when God comes to the people in exile and He shows Ezekiel these things, He says, Ezekiel, notice their abominations. That's what He calls them. See, what we might see is small, indifferent, and petty. God from heaven says they are abominations. They are abominations. They are wicked in my sight. So they believed that true liberty could be found outside of God. You know, listen, we are, you know, if you want to be a true man, be liberated. You don't need a woman telling you what to do. You don't need a family tying you down. If you are a true woman, you don't need a husband tying you down. You don't need a husband telling you what to do. We, we have all of these competing ideas, don't we? Swirling all around us. All of them yelling and screaming in our ears all the time. And they're lies. I ask you a question meant to provoke your thinking a little bit. And when you talk to God's people, though, how often do you talk to a Christian that's actually different than everybody else? And I don't mean different in a bad way, because there's a bad way to be different, and then there's a good way to be different. But it's interesting that you rarely find that Christian that's willing to say, well, what does the Bible say? What do the Scriptures say? What does God want us to do here? Well, what does God say about these things? And, well, if God says this, then that's what I'm for. And, well, I don't care who's against me. I don't care what I look like. But I'm going to take God's position I mean, really and truly, isn't that ultimately the Christian position? No matter what the topic is, shouldn't we as Christians ask that main question? What does God say about these things? If God says these are abominations, are they abominations? The second sin that you'll find as you read through the book of Ezekiel is they were hardly thankful at all for all that they had. And thanklessness seems to follow rebellion because you begin to trivialize those things that should matter the most. They weren't thankful for the laws of God. They didn't see the law of God as a guide unto their feet and a, a light unto their path. They didn't see the, they didn't call the law of God liberty. They didn't see it that way. They saw it was bondage. You know, it's the Psalm 2 problem, isn't it? It is, why do the nations rage and plot a vain thing? How they come together and say, let us pull off the fetters that bind us, the bonds that bind us. We don't want God's law here. We want to we remove those binders and we want to be liberated. They weren't thankful for worship 
They weren't thankful for the Sabbath day. They'd broken the Sabbath day. They minimized the Sabbath day. They treated it as any other day. They treated lightly the things of God. And brothers and sisters, this is the problem. The problem is there are those things in the Word of God that God values. The question is, have we learned to value those things? Have we as God's people sat at the the feet of our blessed Savior and learned what pleases God the most? Have we put some plan in order in our lives that we might put into practice these things that God delights in? They failed to do this. They they saw the worship of God as burdensome and cumbersome. And, you know, it's just in the way. There are so many other things I need to be doing. I'm a busy person. I have a lot of responsibilities. We don't really, you know, we don't share a lot of cultural uh, aspects with the people being uh, with, with the nation of Israel here, but we do share a lot of human nature aspects, don't we? So we don't matter. Cultures, we can be separated by culture, but we are certainly connected by human nature. You see, brothers and sisters, they fail to put to work those things that matter to God and they just become rote and indifferent and blasé and just did not, did not maintain a sensitivity, a heightened view of those things. And when that happened, they begin replacing it with other things. See, that's what always happens. There's always a transaction Those things that you highly esteem will always be priority. Always. And when something else takes the place of you change the things that you esteem, you're going to change your priorities. And that's what Luke had to deal with when the Lord Jesus said, there are those things that men highly esteem, but they are abominations to God. The same way it is in our own lives today. You thought, think this conference is dull and boring. And you, you, know, you say, oh, I mean, the doctrine of the church, you know, um, we could just all get together and, and just have like, you know, three days of singing, emotion. And, and, you know, nothing wrong with singing. But the problem is, brothers and sisters, the itch that's being scratched on something like that is entertainment. God is glorified when we as rational creatures have our mind filled with truth and then form our practice according to that knowledge and understanding that we would begin living in light of that knowledge so that we might glorify God in our whole being. That's the, that's the picture. Everything God required of them became a burden to them. The third sin. And now, brothers, uh, let me, I guess, back up. Because it's, it's, it doesn't take much discernment 
that the majority of churches that grow the fastest and the biggest are those dedicated to entertainment. Those dedicated to certain aspects of prosperity. Certain aspects of blessing. The focus is on not who God is in His glory, but what God gives. And then there's this other aspect of distorted worship, and that is, well, God would never, God loves me so much that God would never chasten me. He would never judge me. He would never put me over His knee, figuratively, and spank me. And yet, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that that's exactly what God does to all His children. That if they are His true children, He will chasten them because He loves them. That He will correct them. And that He will amend, amend, amend their ways. So you find, brothers and sisters, that This idea of thankfulness. Learning to be thankful for the right things. Now this third one I think is a strong one, but this is going to be the last one I will focus on. Well, and that was they did not take responsibility for their sin. They wanted to blame everybody else. The children wanted to blame the parents. The parents wanted to blame their parents. Congregants wanted to blame the preacher. The preachers wanted to blame God. And then ultimately, they all blamed God for their sin. Now, that's easy to do. It's easier to do than you think. I don't want all of us to sit back this morning and think, oh, how dare they blame God? Oh, it's easy to do. Adam was blaming God when he said, when God asked him, you know, Adam, what happened? And well, it's that woman you made for me. She's defective. If she was faithful, I wouldn't have eaten that forbidden fruit. It's easy to blame God ultimately when Eve stands there and says, Eve, what did you do? That's the devil. You allowed the devil to come and tempt me. And I was tempted. And I ate. See, ultimately, brothers and sisters, when we fail to take responsibility, we are in some way blaming God for this. There's a whole chapter given to this line of reason in Ezekiel. And where... God has to clarify their thinking. And he says, listen, listen, listen. He said, oh, no, the children are blaming the parents. And, of course, listen, we need to make sure we understand, right, that as superiors, we do have a responsibility to our children to what? Make the uh, right choices, to show discernment, to lead our family in family religion. You know, it's interesting, right, with everybody doing their own thing. Because that's the way there's peace. You know, the husbands don't want to say anything because the wives may, well, I don't want to do that. I want to look fanatical. See, there's more interest in what we look like to others than what we really look like to God.
There's more interest there. We don't want to look too fanatical. So let's be, let's almost be non-religious because we don't want to, we don't really want to, to give the impression that we are fanatical. So let's not look religious at all. And somehow that's supposed to be pleasing to God. And God says these things are abominations. I'm your God. I'm your Father. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've set you up in this fertile ground. I've caused your vineyards to produce uh, gr- you know, fruit and grape. I've, I've called your fields to yield great harvest. I've caused your cattle to bear calves and goats and sheep. I've blessed your flocks. I've made you prosperous. I am your God. And you have forgotten me. You're more interested in what... The world around you, the nations around you, you're more interested in how they perceive you than how I see you. And that was the problem. You see, brothers and sisters, these sins, and there were other sins, and we could spend a series of sermons talking about these other sins, but I think these are the ones that we struggle with as well, don't we? We struggle with listening to the lies, particularly college students. I mean, make no mistake about it. A major attempt is to restructure the family. There's a major attempt to restructure the family. A major attempt to restructure the home, not in God's image or in God's truth, but in the truth of the world. I mean, there's a major emphasis the world has to highlight demonic forces that men that claim to be clerics and, and, and bishops and preachers of men of God and do despicable and horrible things to people. Almost proving to be demonic, demon-possessed, to, to show that Oh, well, look at these religious fanatics. And we don't want to be seen with those, but what we need to do is instead of stepping back saying they must be punished and condemned, we condemn that kind of behavior. We don't accept it. God condemns it, therefore I condemn it. Oh, the people have been brought low. I think the church in America has been brought low. Struggling with the fact, what are the lies? The lies are that, you know, you can be anything you want to be and just call yourself a Christian and you can be viewed as a Christian. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see, I hope you have enough discernment to see that is not the truth. That's a lie. I hope you understand that the way we come to worship God and the things God requires of us, if we will humble ourselves and learn and grow, we will actually see with our eyes and believe in our hearts that these these ways are the best ways for us. That God's ways are better than our ways. And that we would believe that. And that if we find ourselves out of accord and we find ourselves becoming indifferent or we find ourselves longing and wishing for some innovation, that we would stop and repent and we would confess our sins and we would ask God to change us. 
Lord, these are the things that you like, that you delight in. Would you change me? Would you change me? We have this presumption today that God is just at our beck and call. And it's whatever we want. God is just going to give it to us. Well, because that, that's what He does. He's just a giver. But God doesn't give those things that are contrary to His glory and truth. He doesn't. Well, when they find, when they are contrary to His glory and truth... He gives them over to it. And it, what does it produce? Death. Death. See, brothers and sisters, we're faced with this, the challenge this morning that there's God's way and then there's death. And there's the two options. There's God's way, which leads to life, prosperity, happiness, glory, eternal bliss. And then there's death, sorrow, and misery, depression hopelessness and angst and anxiety of never ever able to grasp what you truly long for because God will never give it. The happiness, the peace that you so long for, He will never be granted because He will never grant it to anyone that denies Him. And God can't deny Himself. To give it to you would be a denial of himself. Notice the text, and let's let's look at this. Thing. But notice why God, if you look at verse chapter 36, verse 22 and onward, God does, he's already established the context here that I do all of this for my holy name, right there in verse 22. Verse 23 of chapter 36. Then the nations will know that I am. Am the Lord. And you go back to chapter 37 now. Notice what he says in verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, God, you know. He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Look down at verse 6. And I will put sinew on you, make flesh uh, grow back on you, cover you with skin, put breath in you that... You may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. It's repeated several times in the section that I read. See, the bottom line, brothers and sisters, is what we do, we must do for the glory of the Lord. That the glory of God must be our food and drink. It must be our motivation. That's because you need that. So when things get rough and tough and become uneasy and it becomes very difficult to serve God, you need to understand that God's glory is at stake here. And I'm willing to bear some uncomfortableness. I'm willing to bear some difficulty. I'm willing to bear some um, uh, uh, uneasiness for the glory of God. I'm willing to bear it. For he's worthy of it. That's why it's called sacrifice. If it's not a sacrifice, it shouldn't be presented to God. You see. Notice the question. Just getting this mindset here of, of 
what he asked the prophet. And he says, oh, son of man, can these bones live? You know, Ezekiel doesn't, you know, respond in some false humility. Some false humility. Oh, Lord God, that question's way too big for me. Oh, I'm so unworthy to answer such a heavy question like that. Lord, no, Ezekiel doesn't do that. You know, a lot of people love to just put on a show. Well, he doesn't want to be ignorant. Lord, I don't know. Can they? He don't want to presume upon God right of course they can Lord they're your people you're going to do this I'd be presuming upon God's goodness wouldn't it see Ezekiel responds Lord you have a plan you know what you're going to do what will that what is your will Lord See, Ezekiel responds the way we ought to respond in several occasions, right? Lord, what is your will? What would you have your servant do? And then how does God respond to that? Well, son of man, prophesy. So we see that this is sort of the condition of God's people. They are dead. And what brought about this deadness is their sin. Secondly, I want to highlight the living God. I want to highlight the living God. This whole section, and of course the whole book itself, but the whole section highlights that our God, the God of Israel, the God uh, uh, who is the only true and living God, is the God of the living. He's the God of the living. To deny and to reject Him is to Die. It's to be dead. It's to flirt with death. It's to have all of those things that come along with deadness, that hopelessness and depression, the anxiety, a lot of things that people struggle with today. Instead of turning to God who gives life, they turn to all different other kinds of means to remedy their problem. And we see here that this condition can only be solved in turning to God. But God is the God of the living. What what Ezekiel sees as an impossibility with men is not impossible to God. You look at the church in America, brothers and sisters, how hopeless are you? How helpless are you? How do you turn the ship? How How do you steer a whole country back to God? You can't by yourself. But you should know the one who can do something about it. And you should seek his face. And you should seek to obey him. And you should seek, you know, think about it, that this pleasing obedience offered to God is the perfect environment for prayer. The perfect environment for prayer That God is the living God. That God has a desire to bring His people to life. Look at the the graciousness here. What did they deserve? They deserved what they got. Deadness. Why should God remedy their hopelessness? 
Why should God remedy their anxiety and depression? Why should God do anything that would benefit them? Because as he says in the book, back a few chapters, God says, I take no delight in the death of man. Oh, I take no delight in this. Now, he does not excuse them, but he takes no delight in this. And God, in a very gracious act, because he is a God who keeps the promises of his people, is because he is a covenant-keeping God. And he told Abraham way long time ago, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of nations, and I'm going to bring kings from you and every nation on the face of this world, on the face of the earth, and every family will be blessed through you. So it was vital that God raise back up the church. God wasn't finished. That God was going to act and He was going to display His graciousness, His glory. He was going to display His desire to live. He was going to display that He prefers the light over the darkness. That He prefers light, life over death. That He did not want His people to remain in this dead condition. But that He wanted them to have hope. And the only way that they could have hope was that they turn from their sin and turn back to God. And He says, I will give you life. I'm going to give you life. You know, that's what's needed in our churches, isn't it? That's what's needed. Oh, if we had this kind of church member. Oh, if we had this many churches. Oh, if we had this and we had that. I know. And look, I'm not saying none of those things can't be encouraging. But brothers and sisters, they cannot be primary. And they often are. What's the primary thing? The primary thing is the gracious glory and power of God. Do you want that? Do you seek that? Is that what you desire for yourself, men, women? Is that what you desire for your spouse, for your loved ones, for your family, for your children, for your church, your pastor? Is this what you desire for your neighbors? That they might all come into contact with the glory and graciousness of God. Let me tell you about my God, how gracious He is. And you need Him, and I need Him, we all need Him. And he's the only hope for any country. He's the only hope for any country. No doubt, if you turn to that very last verse, or that verse 12 through 14, I mean, the Lord sets forth this graciousness. He says, Oh, therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, cause you to come out of your graves. My people! My people. Brothers and sisters, listen, you know what you need to hear when you find yourself in a deadened state? You need to hear God call you, My people. My children. Because one of the lies of Satan that we will believe in is, well, you know what? I'm too sinful. I'm too sinful to turn back now. I'm too sinful. God's grace isn't gracious enough for me and my sin. I'm too much of an embarrassment. What does God say to this nation? He says, oh, my people. My people. 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now I want to stop there. All these things that you see as blessings in your life. Don't stop at the blessing. You have to go beyond that and go, where's the Lord in this? Where's my Lord? Where's my God in this? Look at my graciousness of my God here. Oh, we talk about blessings and blessings and blessings about God be with you. God be with you. That's a blessing. God be with you. God's grace be with you. You know, that was a common greeting in the Middle East, right? God be with you and with you, sir. Because that's the blessing. Heaven is only going to be heaven because Jesus and God are there, right? It's not going to be the streets of gold. (laughs) Who cares? We're not going to be buying anything anyway. What makes hell, hell is he's not there. But his torment's there. You see, brothers and sisters, why should we come? Why should we favor corporate worship? Why should we favor church gatherings? Why should we favor the Lord's Day? Because these are those things that God says, I take great and abundance delight in all of this. You are my people. You are my people. Notice it'll be a sign unto them. Then they will know. Know what? They'll know that I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. You want people to know God. You're going to have to live for God. Yeah. You want people to know God. You're going to have to delight in the things God delights in so they can see God in you. You have to. Thirdly, so we have a dead church. We have a living God. Those two don't go together. So what's God have to do? What's he have to do? He's got to raise them up. He's got to bring life to a dead church because he's the living God. God ain't going to have no dead church, right? So God's got to raise them up. How's God do this? Two things. The word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. Notice what he says to Ezekiel, verse 4. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. You know, this is something that we are seeing less and less and less of in our churches. And that is the exposition, the preaching, the heralding, the messaging of the word of God. And it's being replaced with all kinds of different forms of drama and entertainment. And yet, how does the... How does dead people come alive? By the prophesying of the will of God. Prophesying of the Word of God. The preaching of the Word of God. What does the Bible tell us in the New Testament? What does Paul say? He says, it is the power of God unto salvation. That's what preaching is. 
the power of God and the salvation. There's a, a, a really good documentary I want to turn you on to on uh, Amazon on the life of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he preached back in the heyday of liberalism, back in the 40s and the 50s. And in the UK, the church has, was just crumbling and it was defeated and they, the people were leaving the church in mass droves. I mean, about thousands and thousands and thousands of people leaving the church every year. And so what they decided to do was implement dramas and plays and they wanted to entertain the people to get them back in the church. Well, here's Martin Lloyd-Jones. He becomes a Christian. Leaves medical field and he goes I think the preaching of the gospel is the power of God and the salvation I'm just going to preach and so he just starts preaching and thousands and thousands flock to hear him standing room only and to hear the interviewer And they'll say, what we were shocked at is most of them were men. Because, you know, they had a a, a drunkenness problem in England and London. And yet these men were flocking to hear him preach. To talk about the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and how He forgives sin. And they were Amazed, They were astounded. This shouldn't be. Men want innovation. Huh? We want innovation. Men don't want to be preached to. They don't want to hear how bad they are. They want to hear how good they are. How they don't really need anything. And how we can make them feel comfortable and nice about themselves and each other. And yet those churches were dying and dead. And here Martin Lloyd-Jones preaches the Bible as it is the Word of the living God. And God manifests His power and was saving people. That's what we're talking about. That's how you raise dead people. That's how you bring life to churches that are dead. Just got to preach the gospel. Got to preach the Word of God. Because God honors His Word. Now it's not the bare, it's not the, the bare nakedness of the gospel. It's not just the bare nakedness of words on paper. And it has nothing to do with the minister. Remember, what does God tell Ezekiel to do? Ezekiel, you prophesy and my spirit will do the work. And that's what he says over in verse 14. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place on you, I will place you on your own land and you will know that I am the Lord and I've spoken and done it. You see, brothers and sisters, I cannot help you. Okay, listen. See, if you came to church this morning, and you were prayerless. Thoughtless. Lord, I need you to speak through that fallible preacher. I need you, Lord. He has so many deficiencies. He has several weaknesses. But Lord, would you be pleased to use that servant in my life? And would you make that word powerful to my own heart? Would you glorify your name? Would you, Lord, work in me in such a way that I know that you 
are God and there is no other. Are you praying like that? Why not? Why not? Wouldn't you benefit from that kind of praying? Wouldn't I benefit from that kind of praying? Because, oh, brothers and sisters, the preachers can scream and spit and holler and stomp and slap the pulpit and beat on their Bibles and save no one. Save no one. It must be the Word of God accompanied by the Spirit of God that brings life. Life. But there's another aspect of this prayer, and this is going to be our last point, and I should touch on it briefly. Not that it's not important, but I don't think I need to give much attention to it because I think you're going to know these things. Brothers and sisters, is God powerful enough to raise the dead without prayer? Yeah, He is. Is he powerful enough? I mean, does the preacher have to get up there and ask for God's blessing and ask for God to move among the congregation? I mean, does, does God, is that necessary? No, not really. God does his own will. But God takes delight in prayer. And God wants to hear you pray and ask for you And ask Him to conform you to His glory. Lord, conform me. Change me. He wants to hear us say it. He wants to hear us take the time and make the effort, right? And how, oh, how, are we presumptuous? How, how much guilt could be heaped on all of us? Being presumptuous. God's just going to do it. Now God wants to hear His children cry out to Him. He wants to hear all the congregation say, Lord, come by the power of Your Word and bring us to life. Bring us to a living hope. Not a dead hopelessness. Not a dead hopelessness. Not a dead anxiousness. But a living hope that is able to see far and beyond our circumstances and situations. Oh Lord, bring us all to a place where we can see Your glory and have that glory in us. Put Your Spirit in us and make Your Word living to us. And that's where Hebrews 4 comes in. Oh, the Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern between bone and sinew, bone and marrow, right? The heart and discernment. Why, the Word of God. Show it to me. Be gracious to me. And I'll be living. And I'll serve you. Because you are... You don't deserve any of this. But I have it because you're a living and gracious God. Let's pray.